Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Jeff. Nice to see all of you this morning and all your cheery little faces. Turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Be reading two verses today, verse 1 and verse 2. As we have just finished up our two-part uh, message titled, God's Providence Through Our Chaos, we look at the beginning of Saul's entrance upon the stage of Scripture. We are first see that the seeking Saul, we saw that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, 3-5, through 5, we saw how Saul was um, pursuing uh, his father's donkeys. Secondly, there is the actual meeting with the prophet that we saw in chapter 9, 6 through 21. Uh, thirdly, the introduction uh, to the people who saw in uh, verses 22 and 24. And fourthly, it was the communion on the housetop, and that was in 25 and 26. And fifth, fifthly, uh, we will look at today, which is the installment of Israel's first king by the anointing with oil. Let us go ahead and read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. says, And Samuel took a vial of oil <clears throat> and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. Is, is my mic on, you know? doesn't sound like it, does it? <clears throat> Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, we thank you for who you are. We exalt you, Lord. We know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that you sovereignly have saved us, Lord, to bring you glory. Uh, to bring you glory through how we live our lives, uh, through biblical holiness, Lord. But also, Lord God, um, how we conduct ourselves in the house of the Lord. Uh, that we are not compromised, and that, that we are uh, singing songs to you that are Christ-centered, and glorifying our master and not ourselves. Lord, we just pray, Father, over the preaching of your word, uh, that there would be no uh, personality-driven ambitions. Lord, but it be focused primarily upon you and you alone. Bless your people, Lord, as the, as the word of God is going forth this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would um, take a hold of them by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would move through this service this morning powerfully, Lord transformational power. Lord, just rule and reign over us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Then Saul took a vial of oil and he poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Let me just remind you again, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, the Lord said to his people, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, 
I will set a king over me like all other nations around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. It's important to recognize that reality. One from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Here we see, obviously, the focus was on David, King David. But we see here also the beginning of the kings uh, in 1 Samuel as Saul is installed. In Acts chapter 13, verse 21, um, it says, Then the people asked for a king, and God gave them 40 years under Saul, son of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. God's intention was to have a king set up over his people. This has always been God's intention as we read in his word. But obviously we know what the ultimate forecast is and what the ultimate culmination of that means. Um, but here we see uh, Saul's kingdom ultimately was, it was ordained of God but also was eventually rejected by God. And God has his reasons, doesn't he? And everything that he does is, and everything that he purposes, even the rejection of a king, ultimately its whole design was to exalt another king, in which that king would ultimately point to the king of kings, the Lord of lords. God's intention through the word of God is never to exalt a man. It's always to exalt Christ. And the word of God always and must always point us to Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel chapter 8, 7 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over you. This whole rejection that we see is ultimately by the people. And this is what God rejects, this reality in unconverted men that by nature do not want anything to do with God. First Samuel uh, chapter 16, jumping up some verses here of chapters, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil. And be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen. Here we go now. We read in Deuteronomy. He said, I have chosen. God says, I have chosen. Not you have chosen, but I have chosen one from his sons to be king. David was to be God's king. But was still, at the end of the day, he was an earthly king. David's kingdom was a type and shadow of the kingdom of God that can only come to those who are what? Born again. The kingdom of Christ, the establishment of Christ's reign is only for those people who, first and foremost, have been elected by God himself, but who have been sovereignly converted by his power. These are those who are a, who are a part of what, in Matthew 3, 2, when John the Baptist um, uh, came blown across uh, throughout the country land, preaching to the people. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here comes the culmination of the ultimate kingdom. Matthew four sixteen says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. 
And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even under David's ministry, people still sat in darkness. Anything compared with Christ, as, as contrary to Christ, until he has come on the scene and rescues his people, are in darkness. Now we know, obviously, that there's different views in the sense of the Old Testament to the New Testament, those who were converted, those who had a, had a, uh, a circumcised heart, where the Spirit of God did consistently stay and embody them and empower them, but they were still the elect. They were still God's people until Christ came and satisfied that reality. Matthew 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom isn't like David's. I didn't come here to rule with a sword. That's not the word of God, by the way. But he goes on to say, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. This is the origins and the nature of, of the true kingdom of God under the true king and savior, Jesus Christ. But it all began, you know, with a man who completely failed in his ministry to the Lord. It began with Saul. And that's what we saw in 1 Samuel 10, 1 and 2. But this breaks down into five points I want to deal with this morning. And those five points are this. Number one, the vial. I want to deal with the vial Number two, the kiss. Number three, the declaration. Number four, the reminder. And number five, the family. The vial, the kiss, the declaration, the reminder, and the family. First Samuel 10 verses 1 says that Samuel took a vial of oil and he poured it on his head. Stop right there at the first beginning because a lot of, a lot of uh, theologians miss this. The vial, let's deal with the vial. The vial was a narrow-necked vessel from which the oil flowed in drops. It was, of course, no common oil which the prophet used in this momentous occasion, but the oil of holy anointment. The sacred anointing oil, which is used at the consecration of the priest and also of the tabernacle and of the sacred vessels. It's important to understand as well the instrument used in the distribution of the oil before just skipping over the fo and focusing just on the oil and the anointing. Everybody wants to know about the oil and the anointing, the oil and the anointing, but what about the vial? Many theologians and commentators skip over this, not realizing there is significance in the vial itself. The vial actually was called, uh, in those days, it was called, some uh, translations call it the flask. It can be used as vial. But the original name was called the ampulla. Um, it was a small Greek or Roman globular flask or bottle with two handles and a short narrow neck and a rounded body used for holding liquids, especially oils and perfumes. It was used in the ancient Mediterranean for anointing the bodies of the dead and then being, being buried with them. 
Interesting note on Matthew 26, 7, it said a woman came to Christ having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his what? Upon his head. And as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, what is going on? Why the waste? And then Jesus says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. In ancient times, the ampular flask was used in the anointing of priests, but also the anointing of kings. So for, first, before the whole institution of the monarchy, only the priests were anointed with oil, signifying their dedication to God for a special task. So I forget that. You know, they were anointed with oil. The priest, right, really is, is very an illustration of really, and this is where of today's um, preachers, today's pastoral ministry operating and functioning, and not as priests that the Roman Catholic Church would teach, but the reality that we operate as a new kingdom of priests, but also we operate in a pastoral element to where these would fit perfectly into that calling. Find out where I was here. By anointing the kings of Israel, the Lord showed that he established the monarchy. Israel asked for a king with the wrong motives, but the monarchy was ultimately God's gift to his people. But there's also consequences for our actions and rebellion. You wanted a king just like all the other nations, and that is exactly what they got. The vessels used in the anointing of this king says it all. The ampulla, the flask, the vial, the container, really, ultimately, as we see, did not represent or symbolize the favor of God. And one thing we do know is this, is that it was man-made. It was man-made. Just like Israel's new king man-made. Obviously, we know the sovereignty of God. We know God ordained it to come to pass. But let's not forfeit the reality that this man was raised up by the people. He was a man's ambition personified in front of them. David, on the other hand, if you continue to read out this, was anointed with what? A horn of oil. 1 Samuel, you can read this in 1 Samuel um, 16, 13. The horn uh, was that of a ram, which wasn't man-made, but created by God, representing the shepherd king, and most importantly, the ram focused on the future king of kings and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, uh, David was not anointed with a man-made object. He was anointed with a horn of oil. Why is this so significant? Because one points to the product of men's unregenerated hearts, while the other in its fullest form points to Christ. God is in the details, brothers and sisters. There's nothing in Scripture that you can just remove and says has no significance whatsoever to us. Everything has significance. And this is really a perfect illustration of the believer. Look what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life. 
This is Paul pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Timothy, for I am ready to be poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 20 and 21 says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some of honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, an ampule of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. It's a beautiful illustration of a believer in Christ. We must recognize this reality that God's intentions, obviously, to ordain Saul as king, had some preliminary issues there that we can read and see, not just by the, the extent of Saul's ministry and seeing the failures that had happened. Ultimately, his life ended by going to witches and suicide. And we look at that, we're going, wow, what in the world is going on as the first king in Israel? But this reality is because God has shown us from his word that God's callings, I think it's, it's, uh, it, I think it's Romans 11, 29, it says the gift and callings of God are without repentance, that once God sets something in motion, it's his perfect wisdom and will and decree for these things to come to pass, even though we don't fully grasp everything that's going on. But we can see right from the beginning when the calling of Saul, the people called Saul out. It was an invention from, the, from man's heart. And God allowed this just to show the idolatry that people have in wanting this king. They didn't want a king because they wanted to glorify and honor the Lord and be subjected to a godly man. They totally rejected the Lord and they wanted some man, some icon that they could go to that they thought somehow their other lustful ambitions could be satisfied as well. But he was rejected. Why? Because they rejected God. And God set it in motion that this man would not be would not be a man after my own heart like David was. This man was rejected. Right at the beginning we can see God's establishment of this king right down to the flask. We must understand this reality because God set in motion this guy's not for me. He is for me but ultimately, I let the people have what their sinful hearts desired. It's a scary place to be. If God would let us have our way, what would become of us to be a bunch of monsters? Could you imagine the evil that we could commit if God just let us run in our own rampant sin? Which brings us to the second point. Number two, Samuel kisses Saul. We'll talk about the kiss here. Samuel took a vial of oil and he poured it on his head. This kiss, uh, you know, really indicates the, this, um, you know, it, it says that he poured it on his head, and the last point there says, and he and, and kissed him. And this kiss, ultimately, um, it represents homage to a king. And I, I think this is a beautiful illustration of Samuel. 
you know, I mean, Samuel obviously didn't know where this guy was going, but he certainly understood how this guy was inaugurated and how he came to be. And probably, you know, if he's like everybody else, did not like this whole reality. But he accepted it. He not only accepted it, but in his humility, he offers him homage. I think it's a beautiful thing. You think of Samuel. I mean, think of this ministry of Samuel. Think of how many judgments that he he called, how many things that he was in control of at that time, and how he was used by God, and how um, at the level of his ministry. But then he comes to Saul, seeing Saul's introduction into ministry, and he pays homage to Saul. I think it's a beautiful indication of the humility of, of Samuel, but shows us how God really has designed a, a king to be brought in. Just think about this. When Elijah was depressed in the desert and feeling that he was the only one who worshipped the Lord, the Lord told him, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And in every, listen, in every mouth that has not kissed him. Think about that for a minute. He's saying that you know, in every mouth that has not paid homage to this idol, this false god. In biblical times, a kiss on the cheek was an expression of friendship. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, feigned friendship with Jesus by kissing him. In 1 Thessalonians 5.26, Paul commanded that Christians should greet all the other brothers with a holy kiss. Today, at least in Western cultures, a firm handshake or a hug is equivalent to a sign of friendliness, but not homage. Okay, so these things weren't homage. Um, Psalms chapter 2, 12 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That is, do homage, O you kings of the earth, to him who is your anointed king. The psalm makes it clear that failure to establish a friendly relationship with the anointed one brings about his anger and wrath that results in damnation. Revelation 20, 10 through 15 reveals that this fate involves being cast into the lake of fire. However, those who kiss the Son are blessed and protected by him, which you read in John 3, 16 through 18. And this is a summary of the gospel message that we can be saved only through faith in Jesus Christ. And this would be a word of warning to us this morning who may be bewitched into believing a false gospel and to be believing in uh, some form of religion that you think somehow that your good works are going to somehow merit you a place in heaven. It's a very dangerous place to be because you've not paid homage to the Son that he is still angry with you and his wrath abides upon you. And it's a scary place to be because the Bible talks about there's only one way to be made right with God in John 14, 6. That there's no other way that God accepts. God doesn't accept your intellectual superiority as a way for you to enter into the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards talks about this intellectual salvation of his day that many men were given over to this idea that the more intellectual that they became, the more secure with God they became. But there's going to be a lot of intellectuals in hell. 
And the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Trust me. A lot of brilliant preachers that will be in hell. And a lot of people that so-called that believe that they're Christians will be in hell. So a lot of false views of Christianity being peddled around in this country. We're under the damnation of God. We're under the wrath of God in this, in this country. Oh, you say, well, I don't see his wrath being poured out. No, but I'm telling you one thing. God's wrath shows up in different ways. You see the level of perversion that's in this country and how people are totally, literally mutilating themselves and trying to change their identities, change their gender. This, this ultimate pressing, violent almost desire to, to, to force other people to conform to their views. Almost to the point where you get beat into submission. You've got a, a vile, perverted, disgusting uh, government with a vile president that wants to drive everybody into an absolute state of madness, into debt, into despair, into to destroy our culture, destroy our military, destroy our finances, literally destroy everything in this country. It's called a wicked leader. They're all over in the Bible. There are wicked leaders in the Bible. And, you know, there are some things that the Bible tells us always to submit to our leaders, okay? I get that. And to pray for our leaders. But no way are we as believers to go ahead and condone and support the evil that's being propagated through our government today. The murdering of babies, the slaughter of children, Everything's anti-children. You got people uh, in front parading in front of these little children, trying to indoctrinate them with critical race theory, walking around with men dressed like women, hanging out of themselves, totally in front of little children. It's abusive. It's terrorizing. They're trying to destroy the little ones in this country. And it's absolutely demonic, and it's monstrous, and it needs to stop. But it needs to be stopped by Christians who confront it and stand up to it. And then the compromise in the church. You know, now we see everybody wants to, they're all afraid, you know. They're all afraid to do anything. You know, they'll go stand up at a BLM conference, but they certainly won't preach the truth behind the pulpit. It's totally insane. And you've got these, these uh, uh, pastors that compromise the truth because they don't want to offend anybody. They want to allow people to be who they are. And then they're not only on top of that, they're ordaining homosexuals to, to come up and preach. It's absolutely gone insane in this country. You know, God is, is more concerned, trust me, with the sin in the church than he is the sins of the nations. Things that are going on around, we're like, oh, well, look at the world. Look at these things. They're attacking us. Look, 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 look. No, look at the body of Christ. Look at the church. The Bible says that God, judgment comes first to the house of God. And we're participating in the very things that we're called to confront. Why are we doing that? Even many of us, maybe even here today, are offended that what I just said. You want to know why that happens to you? Because you're subjected to it. And you, you take on someone else's narrative because that's all you're being fed. And over a period of time, slowly but surely, you're going to start taking on and believing that narrative. And anybody says anything contrary to that narrative, you get offended. But this is our narrative right here. This is our narrative. This is how we function. This is who we go to. And this is what we believe as Christians. And I'm talking about the whole Bible. 
You know, I'm talking about the scriptures, the holy scriptures, and not have to be thrown every which way by these totally perverted, evil, wicked tyrants that are all over our nation right now. And a lot of it's there because why? The church isn't doing what the church should be doing. I mean, how do we expect, how do we expect, you know, people in the world to change when the church is acting just like it? I mean, we're, we're doing the same things, right? But we want to sanctify those things. And we think God's okay with it if we call it Christian when it has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. I'll get off my tangent. <laughs> But it's a word of warning to us this morning that we would take it, take it seriously. Um, and that if you are not right with God and you're sitting in this chair Sunday after Sunday and you think somehow you're going to escape the wrath of God and you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, you are doomed. You are doomed to a hell that you have no idea exists. Hell has no exits. And once you fall under God's wrath, Listen, I'll take a man's wrath, whatever he can pour out over God's wrath forever. We have to sober up. And we've got to understand there's one gospel. There's not three or four of them. There's one gospel. And that gospel is Christ. And Christ is holy. Okay? And when you are converted and you are changed and God gives you a new heart, you will begin to love him and walk in his ways. You're not going to be perfected. You're perfected in Christ the moment you repent, but the sanctification process is a different process and progress with every individual. We don't want to become judgmental uh, hypocrites and Pharisees either because that is going to pour out more damnation on you because that's the way that you are. I would say you might want to check your own salvation. But we need, a, we, need a, we need to understand this morning, because I love you, that if you're not right with God and you are still thinking that somehow you're going to make it and, and you're not his, you have no love for his word, no love for prayer, no love for the, the church, I would say you're not a Christian. That's a good indicator right there that you are not a believer. Because true believers are all different levels, have a general love for the word of God and a love for God's people. And a love to speak and commune with the God that saved them from the wrath of God. And this whole kissing the sun, you know, like like we have some kind of like we're we're somehow we're gonna dictate whether God accepts us or not. You know, it's really not an offer. You know, God doesn't make that offer in the sense to where, oh, you know, I'll meet you halfway. There's no halfway with God, but it's a command. In Acts 17, verse 30, he says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. You realize God's not asking you to repent? And this isn't permission evangelism. God does not need your permission. God commands you. He commands. The King of Kings commands you to repent. It's a commandment of the Lord. You have no other option. Revelation 19.16 says, On his robe, speaking of our Lord, and on his thigh, he has a name written. Here's a king that we should be focused on, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Third point, Samuel declares Saul's kingship, the declaration. 
1 Samuel 10, 1, the Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Well, this anointing with oil seems to imply the coming of the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, we find that the anointing with oil was representative of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon a person. For instance, the prophet Samuel used oil to anoint David as king of Israel. And we are told the following, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David immediately after the anointing from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. The Hebrew term translated Messiah as well as the Greek term Christ means the anointed one. The fact that the Holy Spirit is compared uh, to anointing with oil associates him with the Messiah. The Bible says that Jesus the Messiah was anointed with the Holy Spirit. The anointing also, whoops, I'm sorry. The books of Acts records Peter saying how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This also brings us to another point. The, the anointing also refers to power for the work of the ministry. This anointing, yes, represents confirmation. You know, it also um, represents that um, the Spirit of God comes upon a people. But why does the Spirit of God come upon an individual? In the first place, is it so we can just line up in front of the church every Sunday morning and just have someone pray for you so you can fall over backwards five or six times each morning? Is it to show off and put on a circus, a dog and pony show in front of the church? Is this why we have the anointing? So so so-and-so can come up and come up and come up and come up and just get bowled over a hundred times? That's not what the Spirit of God is given for. It's given to his body so that we are enabled to go out with the anointing to go into a world that literally hates God and hates you and being able to to not only navigate, but also to go through and shatter the powers of darkness. That's why we're given the Spirit of God. We're given the Spirit of God so we can be godly to one another and not gossip about one another. Slander. We're given the Spirit of God so we can be loving and we can be, as Christ said, that we're to lay our lives, husbands, lay your lives down for your, for your wives. You couldn't do that unless you were born again or enabled by God's power. It's for a godly woman to respect her husband. She can't do that unless she has the Spirit of God enabling her to do that. We have to understand it's the it's gospel's power in all of these avenues of life that gives us the spiritual muscle to be able to do God's will in a world gone mad. Isaiah the prophet wrote about this when he predicted the coming of the Messiah. He put it this way. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Here the prophet says that the Spirit of God has anointed this person for the work of the ministry. <clears throat> James also wrote about the use of oil in a healing context. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And finally, 
We are told that believers in Christ have an anointing from the Spirit to understand God's truth. To understand God's truth. John wrote this. John wrote, Christ the Holy One has blessed you. And what? And now you all understand. We can understand the truth of God because the Holy Spirit has anointed our hearts and minds to His truth. In other words, He has opened our hearts to the truth. But Christ has blessed you with the Holy Spirit. This is in 1 John 2.27. Now the Spirit stays in you and you don't need any teachers. The Spirit is truthful and teaches you everything. So stay in your heart with Christ, just as the Spirit has taught you to do. And some, anointing with oil has a number of important lessons for us when it's associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. This being the case, we should pay close attention to these passages which use this analogy. For one thing, the kings of Israel were anointed with oil. This represented the initial coming of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The idea is that they were to rule the nation, rule the nation through the power of God's Spirit rather than in their own power. Jesus said in Acts 1, 8, and we we're talking to the believer, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This whole idea of Saul, of, of Saul being anointed <clears throat> was a huge reality because here's the idea. The reason why I'm anointing you is to, is to bring this reality that the, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to enable you. He's going to empower you to watch over my people, my inheritance. And that's extremely powerful. That's scary. I'm going to enable you with the Spirit of God for what? A work of a king. Okay? By my Spirit, you will run as a king. And you will, you will learn to govern people under the power of God. As we know, which we'll get to later, uh, as we look at Saul's um, kingdom as it begins to start, and then when it crashes, we'll see the failures in a lot of this. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 10, 5 and 6, it says, <clears throat> After that you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come that city, and there you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from high with a string instrument, a tambourine, a flute, a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, he says to Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Psalms 133.2 says, It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. You have this idea of just being covered, literally covered in the oil of God. Psalms 23, verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. You know, this whole idea of anointing oil, God takes extremely serious. And here's God in the details when he talks about his anointing oil. He says this, 
Exodus chapter 30, uh, 23 through 33, he says, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, a flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and a fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and a fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. You shall make of thee a holy anointing oil, a perfect mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all of its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of the burnt offering, all its utensils and the labor and its stand. You shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on everybody's body, nor shall you make anything like it of the same proportions. God is saying, don't make anything. Don't mimic it. Don't make any counterfeits. Don't try to make this. Okay, these are from myself. That's how serious God is. He says, it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix anything like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be literally cut off from my people. God's pretty serious about the ingredients that, that he put in to the anointing oil. It wasn't just, you know, throw something together, slap it on, and there you go. It wasn't just something cheap you could get from some, you know, Hebrew store. It was... It was, God had a design. God has a design to everything. And this was a, God had a design for the oil. You know, every little nook and cranny, every little thing, there's a point to it. And this is how serious God is when dealing with the Holy Spirit. Don't mess around. Don't try to formulate your own view of the Holy Spirit. Don't try to make things up. Make sure you're operating and functioning is God have you functioning in biblical truth where the Spirit of God would be pleased to bless the work of your hands. In Exodus 29.7, he finishes by saying, <clears throat> and you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on the head and anoint him. Brings us to, chapter, to the fourth point, I'm sorry, the fourth point. Samuel directs Saul to the tomb. This is the reminder now. Point four, the reminder. First Samuel 10, 2. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb. What's the significance of this reality? Well, I'm sure there's more than just one. But for starters, we're going to just use this one today. Matthew Henry makes a great point when he states this. The first place he directs him to was the grave of one of his ancestors. There he must be reminded of his own mortality. And now that he had a crown before him, must think of his grave in which all his honor would be laid in the dust. Such a beautiful analogy. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says this, Better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Another translation says, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days, that we we may present a heart of wisdom. Samuel wanted Saul to remember that his days are short, you are but dust. But also, if you're going to watch over God's people and lead them, you better remember you will give an account. So think about your death and not upon your invested power. 
Otherwise, you will fall and you will destroy the very thing you have been called to shepherd. That's a sober reminder to us as well. Those of us who are guardians of God's word. God takes it very seriously about how you not only live your life, but how the word that comes out of your mouth, the word of God. If you're talking to people about the word of God, if you're preaching the gospel, you know, make sure it's the real gospel and not some false gospel that's been manufactured from the flesh. It also is great for leadership in church, pastoral ministry that God has endowed the elders. He's anointed them for the work of the ministry and that we need to take that very seriously um, and not look at this endowment of power so we can just preach so we can just be seen publicly, so we can just get attention and we get the acclamations of other people looking up to us like we're some kind of spiritual giants. This is not the attitude. You're anointed by God. You've been called. Saul was called into kingship. David was called into kingship. This reality of being anointed, this calling coming into something that God anoints you with the Spirit of God, He empowers you for the call of God upon your life. You're not to use that call for your own purposes. And you're not to contradict the Spirit of God and the truth in the way that you live out this calling. Today, anything goes. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. The pulpit has become American Idol in America. Open mic night. Everybody gets a turn. But nobody's accountable for anything. It should not be us. Remember, this is very extremely important for all of us to consider. Which brings us to the last point. Samuel tells about Saul, about his worrying father and family. First Samuel 10, 1 Samuel 10.1, he sees he is anointed. Uh, then Samuel uh, chapter 10, verse 2, he goes on to say about going to Rachel's tomb, be reminded that your life is short. You know what? If you ever get too high and mighty and too much of yourself and you start thinking you're a really, really awesome, great person, go to the grave. Go to the cemetery and look at all the tombstones and imagine all the lives that they had lived and they're in the grave, quiet, in a tombstone. Okay? Just think of that for just a moment, and that should sober you up when you start thinking too high of yourself. And you think that this light, little life of yours is going to last forever? It's not. God doesn't guarantee you one more breath. Do you realize that you're going to make up that group out there? You're going to be one of those tombstones with a little date when you were born, one little slash that represents your life, and the little date is going to say when you departed. That's it. And most of the time you've probably forgotten. Think about that. I mean, you're going to be remembered periodically by people, but it's, you're, you, your fame is dead. So before you try to be famous and want everybody to look at you and give you an applause all the time, you're just, you're just you've got these urges, you just have to be seen and heard and liked constantly, that's going to matter when you're in the grave. And it's going to go by fast. Trust me, the, our days are short. Our days are short. If you don't think that, please do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Go to, go to the cemetery, okay? We can get the, we get the fun bus to pick them up and take them out there on a field trip. <laughs> and those of us on the men's chat know what the fun bus is, and I will send it. <laughs> Jerry. He goes on to say, 
and, and, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys. No longer gives a rip about the donkeys, okay? He's worried about you. What shall I do about my son? Okay, this is a beautiful analogy here. Because not only does God care about Saul's donkeys, and we keep, I'm tired of the donkeys, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? God cares about Saul's donkeys, which symbolizes the work of another trade. Let's not forget that. The donkeys represented Saul's past. Okay? You know, just like Peter when he was a fisherman. Even though he went back to that because he was comfortable with it, and it was his identity, the reality is that was his past. He took on a new work. Paul, Saul was now king. He stepped into a new reality. The donkeys have been taken care of, by the way, and now your dad's worried about you. It's more important. You're no longer got to concern yourself with chasing donkeys, Saul. The chasing donkey days are over. To all of you, the chasing donkey days are over. And now you are on a new course. Saul was on a new course. The donkeys no longer were going to be a part of his life anymore. He's not going to be reigning as king over Israel and going, where's the donkeys? Where's the donkeys? You see this king walking through the woods looking for donkeys. No, he's got better things to do now. He's been called to a different life. And he took it on. And I believe this reality about not only giving him the comfort, the donkeys have been found, but it's also saying that part is over. Now your dad, which is going to be something probably forever, is worried about you. That takes precedence. 1 Corinthians 9.14, as we finish up, says, Even so the Lord had commanded those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. We see this distracted reality that many people share, even in leadership, pastoral leadership. When you're called to a certain calling, the reality is, yes, obviously there's no problem with someone making extra money or being bivocational. But the chief point here in Scripture is, is that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Stephen, in the book of Acts, says, Then when the twelve summoned the multitudes of the disciples and said, is, is it not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables? Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. First Timothy chapter 5.18 says, For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox. We're not to muzzle Saul, chasing donkeys. He is to be free to do what God has called him to do. So not muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Okay? The labor is, not say is not, is worthy of his labors. He's worthy of his labors. Oh, oh, this happens just to fall in line with because I'm a pastor in this church. I'm not afraid to talk about verses that deal with the subject because it's what the Bible says. It's not what I'm saying. And I'm not manipulating and twisting these around. But my point is, is that you know, the labor of a pastor is worthy of, of financial strength at some level. So it may not be a lot. It may be nothing at times, which it has been at times. But this reality doesn't, you know, indicate that this is something we should be ashamed about or even ashamed to talk about. Because I think a minister 
you know, that, that ministers God's word, invest 30 hours a week to prepare the word for you to eat, to prepare something for you. It's not like I just came, I didn't cut and paste someone else's path, someone else's sermon. I invested a lot of time in preparation because I love you. I don't want your money. But the reality is this, is that it takes a lot of time for someone to do that. It takes a lot of time to minister to a church and to serve a church in the capacity as it gets bigger to be able to do that effectively. How can I meet with you when you demand that from a pastor? You need these things, and I can't because I'm putting 40 hours somewhere else. You understand? So you can't really complain if this is the lot that I have by vocational. I didn't put this together because somehow I wanted to manipulate this whole sermon for my gain. No, it just ended up that way from the verses. And this is how we're, we're ending today. You know, it's really, it's, it's really the Lord granting his servants relief by removing distractions so that they may focus on what they've been called to do. Amen. So they can focus on what they've been called to do. Not to sit at a desk all week, you know, and just to collect a check. It's, it's they, they need to be working. And the labor of a pastor is a lot more difficult than people think. Um, the spiritual warfare is heinous. But the reality is that they should be working. You know, they should be involved and they should be doing that. And the church should be ashamed uh, to be able to give and to sow and to give from a generous heart that Ivan... If you guys have listened to Ivan's message last Sunday, there's not very many people that were here. Do yourselves a favor. That was probably one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard on generosity. In the way that he broke it all down, it was just amazing. I thought it wasn't all about giving money. But just the whole aspect of the Christian life, I thought it was just a beautiful thing. So we look at the vial today, the kiss, the declaration, the reminder, and the family. I appreciate your patience this morning. I probably preached a little long. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this, the establishment of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would send a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit into each one of our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would be pleased to literally rend the heavens and pour out your spirit upon your people. And let us operate in that dynamic in a world that's gone mad. You've anointed us for a work, Lord. Not so we can just come to church and play show and tell. But Lord, so we can be utilized by you for your glory in the advancement of your kingdom upon this planet. So Lord, bless your people today. May this word be a blessing to them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor.